second thing that's not as illegitimate is we're here for covenant children. We're a covenant family-based church. That just means that your microphone's bad. That just means that you are understandably scared of non-Christians. I said understandably. I'm not mocking it. But you, in this youth world, you get this like, are you a family-based youth ministry? Uh, yes. I certainly don't want the dads teaching the Bible studies, though, right? If you want to ruin youth group, let the moms and dads, like, yeah, put all the moms and dads in there. If you really want to ruin your youth group, ask the grandparents to teach it. So, like, both of these models, one group is saying it's our job to equip covenant kids, keep our kids. The other one says it is our job to do evangelism. Let's get in the local public high school. And when these are your only goals... I would just argue to you, you're not listening to the Bible. The Bible says that both can be done well side by side. And most of you have seen this done well side by side. This language that you're seeing in and around youth ministry is, is really interesting. Because it really is ignoring the Great Commission. You are, you should have a component in your youth ministry. Now you may just be starting. You may not have the staff do this, but there should be a component in your youth ministry where you are figuring out how do we meet high schoolers and middle schoolers who we would never meet otherwise at the church. That is part of your programming goal. It is what Jesus is asking of you. It is not what RYM is asking of you. It is not what RUF. It is what Jesus is asking of you. And there is a part of your youth ministry that must be asking the question, how do we serve our families well? How do we equip these kids to walk with Christ from kindergarten to grade with parents who make lots of educational choices, homeschooling, private schooling, public schooling, and now even third and fourth options? Your job is to walk with those kids and to enter into their lives as a spiritual guide and influence to help them know how to love their parents, know how to walk with their parents, know how to face college where things are different. And if I'm overwhelming you, I'm okay with that. Because this is not what I'm telling you. This is what Jesus says. You go. Go into the world. Right. That's a leave the building language. Go figure out how to be in those places where high schoolers are. When you get there, tell them about me. When they believe in me, help them walk with me. This is the biggest deal in my mind because we really are trying to say you can't choose. Now, let me, let me take a little pressure off. Some of you have got like six evangelists in your youth group. And so like, you're just, this is not many of you by the way because you're in Presbyterian circles, but some of you have this. <laughs> Kids are coming to Christ. I mean, it's crazy. They're all over you. You can't start enough small groups and it's just like the momentum's going and... You know, you, like you try to do an insider thing, like let's let's do something on apologetics and defending the faith, and like let's, let's really help these covenant kids, which is a little, totally legitimate thing to do. And like nineteen nine Christians come, you start talking about Van Til, and they're like, "What must I do to be saved?" There are those people. Jaron Bars is that person. If you're Jaron Bars, like, Jaron Bars would go to lecture on Calvinism, nineteen people got saved. If I talk about Calvinism, nineteen people leave my group. That's what that. <laughs> So, like, the giftedness of this, your, your group is going, nobody's balanced. Are you not balanced? I'm not balanced. My church won't be balanced. 
But as a leader, as a youth, as someone who's thinking about reaching men and women, I have to think about both of them. It's also worth recognizing that the way you're gifted means that if you're gifted as an equipper teacher, as a discipler, you're really great. Les Newsom, in a lot of ways, is an unbelievable communicator of information and very important information that you have to think harder about this. And you're more scared of this, right? If you're this, I had a pastor recently tell me, he goes, Man, I am great with everything in church that involves me never being in the church in a Sunday school class. And you're a head pastor. You can't say that. But what he was was an evangelist that was not Mark. And what he meant was I'm so comfortable doing this and I'm so uncomfortable doing this. I said, well, that's easy. You just need to hire your second guy who this is all he wants to do, right? Like, this is why this matters. A, you get to go back and say... How are we reaching? How are we equipping? What are our programs to reach? What are our programs to equip? It also lets you go back and admit, man, I'm an equipper. Uh, do we have an evangelist in the building? Because if we don't, we ought to get one in the building, right? We ought to think about how to do that. Last application, I'll come back to this, <coughs> we'll come back to this a little bit later. One of the reasons this is, uh, it's obviously important because it's what Jesus teaches us in the Great Commission. Um, I mean, I also realize that throughout the book of Acts, every time the Christians led people to Christ, they formed a church, they got happy, and God sent persecution so they'd keep moving. Uh, There's four persecutions pressing the church out because God cared about evangelism more than the, the apostles even, which is crazy. This is difficult to do in church settings because these are their own tribes. <laughs> and tribes don't mix well. The cows and tribes, they get along inter- like, hey, internally they want to destroy each other, right? Like the cows and the tribes. Thank you for understanding that and laughing at it. It's true. <laughs> like, um, and you just have to be really thoughtful as a group, as whether you're a small church or a big church, uh, about how to let these things get together. Because people who are good at this, what's interesting about reading around youth ministry is when you really get into some of these articles that are making strong arguments about the way or the direction you do it, um, they're really thoughtful, but they're not thoughtful about who they are. Like, they've not really taken into account their personality, as it were. And so these tribes often don't mix well, and they see themselves at odds with one another. Um, and some of that is just, let me, let me try to be somewhat helpful, is that we're, we have been historically as conservatives, as evangelical conservatives, so frightened of liberalism. Hey, that's legitimate. But we've been so frightened of liberalism that this thing has folded in conservative circles pretty significantly. Because we can't figure out how to get there and remain evangelicals. Especially in youth ministry, you see so many kids go to college and disappear on you. Um, that it's easy to see how these things kind of aren't up and shoot one another. And you've just got to work hard to recognize they're both in place. Let me take some more pressure off. 
If you're terrible at reaching, I really mean this. Let me give you one good program. Next fall, go to the high school with permission from the right authorities and not with your and not carrying under your legal carry permit, please. And buy whatever the best candy is in America and stand outside the high school when they're coming in the first day and go, we're glad you're in high school. We just wanted to meet you. Like guys, that's reaching. Reaching does not mean that you always come to a deeply confrontational moment of, are you ready to pray to receive Christ into your heart forever today on the sidewalk? That happens sometimes. It's a beautiful, I mean, I've watched it happen. I've even had it happen once or twice with me, right? But reaching is the process of you getting to know non-Christians and helping them to see you. Um, Last illustration, and I'll move because the goals and stuff will take a good bit longer, but I can come back to this. <coughs> the most important thing you can do for your kids in youth ministry, especially high schoolers, and especially 10th to 11th and 12th graders, there's a reason I'm picking 10th graders under sort of child development ideas and age, but it's for you to demonstrate to them that you can be a friend of and in love with people very different than you. One of the things I'm experiencing with a lot of families in the place where I've gone is their children don't want to walk with Christ. And I've gotten to know a couple of those kids and this is interesting because I experience their parents very differently than them, understandably. But what they're saying, and I'm also referencing some studies here, is I can't be with my parents in faith. They love their parents because they're just so full of hate. And I'm like, I don't, so let me be honest with you, I don't understand what the ch child means. Like, their parents aren't hateful. There's nothing hateful about their parents. What they mean is... My parents could not be friends with anyone they disagreed with at all. That's what they mean by hate. They didn't really mean like, shoot. They probably meant at the dinner table or around elections and politics, they heard hate. They didn't mean my parents were in the community. So what you need to do in terms of reaching is show, by standing outside the high school giving out cotton candy, uh, or Snickers, or apples, without your concealed carry, is that you not only can be friends with non-Christians, but you understand them. Like, <clears throat> I'm sort of a tweener if you sort of study all the different, you know, builders, blah, 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 millennials. I'm, I'm in this crazy wrong year where it's swapping. I'll just say that my experience, like for instance, is that... Um, Whatever a Christian tells me, a PCA teaching elder, with very few exceptions of the confession, is true about somebody different than them, I find myself immediately not trusting it. Oh, you know, he's a blah, 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 he believes X. It's not that I think the guy's not blah, 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 and believes X. I don't trust the Christian's interpretation of that, because here's what I assume, it's not always true, he's never talked to that person. Like part of what you're doing in reaching is you're teaching your kids to be friends with non-Christians, to love the crud out of them and still disagree with them. 
That's, that's part of what reaching is. And when you only equip, for instance, you tend to equip in a vacuum. Like, let's be careful of pluralism. Because pluralism says A, and most, you know, most teachers of psychology are pluralists. So be careful if you study psychology at the University of Mississippi. But the person teaching that has never met those professors or talked to them. And part of why you want to reach is you want to teach, like this is what y'all believe. Evangelism is done through friendship. It's not done in a confrontational mall moment. And you will actually be equipping better when you teach them how to be friends. Now, let me warn you about this. If you do this well, it will scare the crud out of the parents in your church. The parents in your church, there's, all parents are cool. They were, I promise you. They were cool. They were hip. They, went, they, they used to drink alcohol and do things they don't tell their children about. They probably all smoked in college. And now when they caught their child the cigarette, the rage that went on was fantastic. Like you're, the, then they had a baby and a, swat, a switch in there went click and they became crazy. Everything they did in their life normally is not true anymore. Like they had non-Christian friends, they hung out with people, but no, my baby will never do that. So that so once you do this well, parents tend to freak out a little bit. Because the more you can get your kids around non-Christians to help them form friendships where while they're still with their family in the church, you're walking them through what it means to deeply love someone and disagree with them, the more equipped they are to go to college. Just way more equipped. They don't show up at college and meet their first teacher and go, man, this guy's complex. Like, I really love him. He's really got some neat ideas. I think he disagrees with my church. Because they've never navigated that before. If you don't help them navigate it. <coughs> These things are deeply related. I think the lie of most of this writing about youth ministry is we're going to A, keep our children, we're going to B, only reach non-Christians, is you do both poorly when you do them alone. You have to do them together to do it well. Um, somebody would say, like, John R.E.F. had a lot of whatever, I don't work there, but like, been really successful. What's the secret of R.E.F.? There's no secret. They have to operate on a college campus. That's the secret. The secret is not like, oh, the method. The people like, you have to go build a group of Christians in the middle of the most liberal establishment in the community. And therefore, you have to do a lot of this stuff well, or, or no students will come. Like, you can't set up an RUF and go, the psychology department's cruddy and horrible and you should listen to it. All of your lazy guys are psychology majors, right? Oh, did I say that out loud? I didn't mean to say that out loud. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All, I mean, you, you recognize intuitively that to help your students, you've got to, you've actually got to know this person. You've got to interact with their ideas and not the ideas you read on Google or in a book. You've really got to step into their lives. And so the effectiveness, as it were, of RUF is not what they're doing, it's where they're doing. I will, what shapes RUF so profoundly is the university. And I think what has surprised me from being 27 when I started working with them to 51 when I quit is that 
What I was basically taught is if you get in a real liberal environment, you'll go liberal. When you get in a real liberal environment and you're pretty mature and ready to deal with it and you've got adults around it, uh, you get more convinced of what you believe, but you also learn to love people better. And high school ministry has tried to do the opposite. It's tried to always take kids out of these environments. But look, we're not talking about five-year-olds and 11-year-olds, right? I'm really, I said I'm talking about 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. I'll get off my little soapbox. There's a part of you that has got to help them walk into friendships with non-Christians. And think about it. That's why, you know, one thing, one program I would suggest you do is to start to say, in every talk you do, I don't know who's cool. Here's Drake's language. We're going to talk about what Drake said. Here's what the Bible says to Drake. How are Drake and the Bible the same? How are they different? What do you think about? Invite them to begin to think about reaching. Um, figure out what their friends think. Have nights where you and say, we want you to bring non-Christians and we're going to let non-Christians ask any question. You've got to have a brave soul to answer the questions. But what you're showing your students is what it looks like to live in Babylon. By the way, they live in Babylon. You can build you a little Israel, but they leave it at Israel. And they move to Babylon immediately. So you might want to raise them in Babylon if that's where they're going to live. And there's, this is what he says to the prophet, right? Quit building your... Quit building your houses outside the city. Move in the city. Move in the city and pray for it. Because I'm going to bless Babylon. Um, is there no way to get a better microphone, Joel? I vote that we change conference centers because of this microphone. Uh, um, let me stop. Questions about that? At least I'm not freezing. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you said that you do those students because their parents are like cheap. Uh, but they're not. What about when their parents are? Or like they uh, think they're kind of racist? Or, I mean, this is a great question that I wish you had not asked me. <laughs> so her question is there's sort of a misperception at times among parents that sometimes parents are actually evil. They're openly racist. Uh, they say things not only in front of their children, but their friends. What do you do with that? I think very, very carefully what you hope to create uh, in your church, even though we may be talking about at times, unfortunately, elders or deacons in that church, sometimes. You're wanting to create a place where what rules is the gospel. Um, a place where Christ and His kingship are held up, Christ and His grace are held up. And I think that the best thing you can do for folks like that is say to them, um, and there's a way to do this. You're not, undermining the, you're not undermining the authority of the parents. But to say, hey, if you ever want to talk about these things, I'm here for you. You don't have to. Uh, especially at times when you've seen something go down. To say, hey, if you'd like to process that, I'd love to process that with you. Um, and some of it is going to depend on the institution you're serving. I mean, uh, 
I mean, some places, you know, if they saw, if they knew a parent believed that, they would, you know, have some really gentle men or women draw around them and say, hey, that's just not appropriate. Other places may not do that. But I think you, in, in talking about this, this is a good question. I'm saying this is the big way youth groups ought to think about themselves. It's having these two calls on Christ to do it. <coughs> in any particular case, like your question, which is, a, again, a good question, it, it just depends. I can't venture into the water. You're going to hate this answer. I can't venture into the waters with this child if I don't have sessional and diaphanal support. I just can't. Um, and I also can't venture into those waters if I feel like what I'm going to accidentally communicate to the youth group is all parents are idiots. Don't trust your parents. You know. And teenagers are smart. They know when this child is struggling. But that question is just... It, it, that question takes wisdom to know what to say and what not to say. Um, yeah, and this it's a good question. I don't have a great answer for you other than prayer, patience, love. Um, I don't necessarily love the language. I don't dislike it. But for that kind of child, your youth group has to be a safe place. A place where they can come and say, I'm being hit. I'm being neglected. My dad says that this kind of person is not a real person. What do I do with it? You want to create a place where someone could ask that question. And that just takes time and atmosphere. Yes, sir. So, what do you do when a young wife seems to have a market card on outreach yeah. and they don't want you to have anything to do with That's a fair and great question. What do you do when Young Life seems to have the market cornered on evangelism and they're really sure they don't want your church involved in doing it? Um, so I don't know your, I don't know you or your church's history or experience, but that, I, that, that's a fair question. Um, one of the things that at one point in so not, I don't know how much y'all know about Young Life in Knoxville, Tennessee, but at one point, the town of Knoxville was two regions in Young Life. They had, they had at least five students on every middle school and high school campus in four counties. They do an annual um, a banquet where they raise you know, $950,000 in one night. It's Jeff Boxworthy spoke at the banquet last year. So at one point years ago, there was a, almost a war between churches and young life in Knoxville. And several pastors realized, not just PC pastors, this is bad. And so the way they bridged that gap was they just started taking the leaders to lunch and say, I want to be your friend. Um, so I think that if there's a real gap, you've got to try to forge a relational connection and then step into it. <laughs> um, I think other ways people have often done this is um, what can bother any ministry, this will be even RUF, is when a church shows up and says, we're going to do A. Uh, it's always easier when a church says, how could we serve? <clears throat> you know, so uh, 
one church in Knoxville said, we'll make sure that you have the best homes that this church had that opportunity, and you can use our facility for meetings. And it took about four years, and those relationships swapped. And what it looked like when they swapped were youth pastors would show up at Young Life Things. It wasn't the center of the church's ministry, but they began to say, hey, that's a great thing. Some of them always get the small group language in Young Life Things campaigners. Some of them actually would lead a campaigners, a one-off, just to say. So what they were trying to say is, we don't do things the same way, but man, we're on the same team, as it were. And I think that the only way to solve that is relationally. And I would say, on some level, our, our church would be an example of this. In Redeem, not my church in Tucson, but at Redeemer is. We never had the capacity to be that good at that. And so we just appreciated it and served it and enjoyed it and sent our kids to it at times. Like, <clears throat> as my daughter would say, Dad, I love RYM and Laguna Beach, but compared to Malibu, uh, that's a disaster. That's a quote in my home. So Malibu is this camp up on the Vancouver coast. And my daughter was only making the joke like, of course we want to go to the Rocky Mountains and an island. And like, I can appreciate my daughter's perspective, right? And my daughter... So I would just say it's a relational question that takes time. And I'd say this to youth pastors. If your pastor and session aren't committed to bridging that gap, probably along with the local, I'm picking Southern Baptist guy or Acts 29 guy, it's harder. <laughs> but I would show up and go, I don't want to steal this. I don't want to stop it. I just want to be your partner. I just want to love you. I want to sit here and learn. Even, I mean, this, sometimes you're not learning something like, that's Taylor Swift. That's a talk about the cross. That's great food. I didn't learn something from that, but you being there, being humble, can be helpful. But I get the question. Yes, sir. I have a 15-year-old in high school, and you know, he deals. He's grown up in the church, but he deals with kids that every day talk about sex and cuss. And public school or Christian school? Oh, I thought that might be a Christian yeah. school. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he'll tell me he had a very liberal teacher last year. Yeah. And he wants me to homeschool him. Yes. You know, and some parents choose to do that. But how do you teach them to be in Babylon right now when they feel like they're in a very strange land? Uh, again, fair question. Um, I, I mean, I love this question. So I think what's hard about your question is... so. You can only do Babylon as a group. I really mean this. You're going to believe what the group you hang out with believes. Okay, so we're jumping off POE. So one of the reasons we think you need, I'm going to answer your question, we need strong youth ministries is because they do live in Babylon and they need to run as a, they need to run together into that. Like they need three Christian friends um, when their friends go drinking, go to have sex, do drugs, you need your three buddies to hang in there with you because y'all are about to make a choice to be alone in a public high school, for instance. You're not alone, but you suddenly have to step outside the circle in the middle of Babylon. So I think that if you, if you can't find people to do it with them, it's just harder. I, 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 he, he doesn't go to school with the kids who go to church. <laughs> right. That, no, I get that. And so, um, I think my answer to you as a parent would be, um, 
Like, I just took this approach with my children. Um, this is John Stone's choice. It's not the PCA's choice. It could not be your choice. It can be done a lot better than this. I just said, let's talk about it. You can tell me anything. I don't care. You can show me what showed up on your phone. I don't care. I just want to know. I want to help you process it. That's why Young Life was helpful to my family. Because we're in a church plant with almost no youth ministry. They could find a little of their tribe in Young Life. A little. And you always have a couple, in our case, sisters with you. I mean, because my girls would come home a lot and say, my first and third, my middle one. I love her. Um, she'd never been to a party in her life. Um, and she could care less. She, um, she's in her dorm as a freshman and she texted us, why, is there, why are there fireworks going off? We're like, they're playing football at Tennessee. She's like, on Saturday? And you're like, I don't know you. <laughs> She's like, she's literally, doesn't, she's not aware of peer pressure, but she is, but okay. But my other two would come home and say, I'd say, how was it? How many people got drunk? Did you have to take anybody home? And like we moved their curfew back. And if they texted and said, it's a wild party, I want to get so-and-so home. So we just sort of said, um, our restriction was a bunch of kids sleeping together in a house with no parents. That was ours. We were minimal rule people. Because we were in your boat where it felt like we couldn't pay to go to a, a private school. We didn't have the money. And, and we just chose to do public schools. And so we just stepped into it. But we did have some people. When you're alone as a child, there's no more loneliness than that. Maybe the loneliness of a horrible marriage? Maybe. But there's no loneliness like being the only 10th grade Christian in a public school. And that's why I think what y'all are doing is vital because you're providing groups. So I would simply say, you just stay close to him. I mean, yours dad, he's never going to think you're cool. He loves you to death. And, you know, he loves you to death. And what I would pray for him is he can find one other Christian friend who will just walk with him in that. Because both my first and third daughter really had people who... Hey, we gotta leave the parties. This is just silly. Or let's go sit on the trampoline and ignore this. And um, and you know that takes a certain personality type. They were extroverts. Extroverts are a little better than introverts, and I get that. Right? And that's harder. No, it's hard. It's not. It's not. It, but look, that's just a hard question. You know, you're not wrong to be concerned, scared. But I would just say, look, son, come home and tell me you got her pregnant and you were high. I'm with you. I think what the what the parable of the prodigal son, one of the things it really teaches us is that kid woke up one day and went, well, he woke up one day and went home. I can take any of this home. I can take any of it home. And what's interesting about sometimes a little bit of the Christian schooling movement is it's set up to succeed, therefore you can't bring anything home. Didn't mean to be set up to succeed. But it's set up on the premise that that's failing. Let's create something that succeeds. And suddenly, in the, in the presence of a success, saying, I'm a 10th grader on cocaine with a pregnant girlfriend, is not the thing you can bring home. And what that, what that son concludes is, I can take anything home. He had sexually transmitted disease. He had multiple children. He was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. He was a street bum. He was addicted to heroin. He walked home and his dad through a party. And that, I think, that's why I'm saying is your children's ability to come home in the midst of failure and have a party thrown for them is a big deal. Right. Good question. Last question, I'll move on. Last question, go ahead. 
Yeah. Passing and drinking and having sex and doing all those things. So to me, we live in a, a great little town in South Carolina, and even the Christian kids are that Yeah. Oh, sure. No, no, I agree. I, I'm just saying, your school choice is irrelevant. Be a great parent, you'll be fine. I'm serious. <laughs> now, I'm putting the pressure on the parents, no doubt, but I'm just saying, you know, I mean, again, in RUF, you're looking at your group, you're like, man, these kids went to Christian school, they're awesome. This kid went to Christian school, he's terrible. This kid went to public high school, he's awesome. This kid went to public high school, he's terrible. You know, homeschool, great. Um, but I, I'm just simply saying, one of the things you're doing in this reaching equipment is creating a group where they can walk through Babylon together. And I would just encourage you to think about that Babylon language. It's helped me. Because that's where we're trying to equip them. We're not having them... Like, the military would never train you to be in a war and you haven't fired a gun or thrown a grenade till you get to the war. And that's a little bit about how we hope we can educate our kids. Like, we'll just protect them and then they'll graduate and we'll cross our fingers and hope. And that's not a great strategy. Um, <coughs> um, I'm going to go halfway through this and then we'll take a break. So our goals, y'all actually have this, uh, you have access to this on that electronic stuff. Remember, we had the, them up, and I, don't, I can't project them here because I don't have a card. But um, <coughs> So the goals in RUF are growth in grace. I'm going to differentiate these, but they're put together as fellowship. In service. And I've never, honestly, and I'm the guy that wrote a lot of it. I don't know why we linked fellowship and service. Fellowship. Service. Missions. <coughs> world and life view. And evangelism. Is anybody looking at that sheet? I have this horrible fear I left one out. I thought there were seven. Is anybody looking at that sheet? Gosh, y'all are so, y'all are, that's right, okay. Yeah. That's world not DWNL. <laughs> Which is, doesn't have a biblical world not DWNL. <laughs> Okay. Okay, so let me tell you what they are. That can I hold that real quick? You have this sheet. You have access to it. Thank you, sir. You have access to this sheet electronically. RYM gave it to you. So this is sort of the entire philosophy of ministry on one sheet. And you see there that the um, and we'll talk about this tree here in a few minutes. But <coughs> That our goals for a student are that they would uh, they would understand evangelism and missions, they would grow in grace, have a biblical world in view, and they would do fellowship and service. And I'm all I'm making the point is I think that those are uh, fellowship and service and evangelism and missions are not missions are not always unto evangelism. I mean, there isn't you know, everything's under evangelism. Sometimes you go and you build a well. Because you're building a bridge to evangelism. Sometimes you go and you do vacation Bible school, which is evangelism. I'm just saying, missions and evangelism are different things. So what are the goals? The goals are what we want to see. We want to see this in a student's life and from a student's life. 
This is our definition of what is a disciple. Okay, let's take a little pressure off. Nobody does all of these. <laughs> right? You know. But you're saying that for a student to be a disciple... Can you see it? <laughs> uh, this is the worst best board ever. Uh, they need to be growing in grace, right? Growing in the knowledge of God. Growing in their understanding of Scripture. And this goes to the point we were just talking about. They need to have fellowship with other believers. Fellowship and friendship. They need to be actively engaged in serving both their community and their church. <coughs> they need to understand the place of a mission, of missions going. We need to be working a world and life view into them. And they need to have some sense of how to do evangelism. And as you look at that, this, this has... So these goals have a huge impact on you. Um, and this really gets into things like... Um, so if you're in a church of 75 people, much more challenging, and it's okay that you don't get there. If you're in a church of 750 people, you need to feel a little more pressure. Um, this is what we want to see in our curriculum, for instance, for students. So in a small group, we might think in terms of for our 7th uh, and 8th graders, or 6th and 8th graders, we really want to do a lot of growth in grace and a lot of fellowship and some simple local service activities, right? We want them to rake some leaves for some widows in the church. We want them to go one day and paint a wall in a habitat house, which also encompasses some of this. We want them to think that their life is a tool of Christ to serve their world. And it's not for them, just for them to be happy. We want to be slowly working the world in life view in, although you might think about this more for senior high students, since an eighth grade boy literally sits in a chair and stares at the floor for youth group. Except for the guy who went through puberty when he's 10 and he's got a beard in junior high. That's always disturbing. <laughs> and you want to be giving them an achievable view of evangelism. So what I mean by an achievable view of evangelism is I can only speak to my experience, which is not helpful. I grew up in such fear of evangelism because preachers told these over-the-top stories about them doing evangelism. And all I knew was I can't do that, right? What he just said, which involved a deeply embarrassing confrontational moment on an airplane or a mall, freaks me out totally. Still does. When Jaron Barr said to me, you know what evangelism is? It's getting to know people. I relax a little bit more. And Jerem's point was, you need to have non-Christian friends. And then he's quoting, you know, um, Francis Schaeffer. Well, how do you get to know, what would you do with your non-Christian friend? You would listen for every 55 minutes that you talk for five. Most Christians talk for 55 and listen for five. And his point was, evangelism is getting to know somebody and praying that God gives you an opportunity to talk about why you're a Christian and what it means to you. Man, that helped me. And so... You know, when you really, the, the, partly what you're doing is you're demonstrating this to you. It's like you're their friend. You're looking for opportunity. You're telling them to bring a non-Christian to an event. You're having an event that's non-Christian friendly. All of that's evangelism. But what this does, it tells me what I want in a person and what I want from a person. <coughs> As a disciple. 
Um, let me say this, you may want to call it something else. You might, literally, these are not like Bible words. Christian education, two thumbs up. But Christian education might involve these, both of these, right? Uh, let me, I want my kids to go on a mission trip. So the most effective thing we, the most, yeah, the most effective thing we did as a parent was put our kids at camp. The second most effective thing we did as a parent um, is that we had them go on a mission trip one summer. We paid for it. They got to pick it. Um, my oldest daughter went to Haiti, and that's why she became a nurse. She was on a bus in Haiti going from uh, one little city over to an orphanage. And there were two, obviously, uh, very obviously American women, very competent, sitting there. And she struck up a conversation. And she said, what are y'all doing here? And they're like, we're nurses. And Sarah said, well, I thought about being a nurse. Why are you a nurse? And they both said, well, we're Christians. And if you're a nurse, you can get in any country in the world without any problem. Everybody needs nurses. And so we're using our nursing degree to go and to serve people. So we're nurses. So my daughter's career was determined on a bus in Haiti. Um, right on a mission trip, which sparked her imagination. So I had breakfast with her earlier this week, and she's just been working since, uh, you know, since uh, I think last day of July last summer, because she graduated last spring with a nursing degree. And I said, "How is she? It's great." I said, "Where you know?" She told me where she's going to church and her new friend. And I said, "So," uh, <clears throat> I said, "Welcome to the rest of your life." Um, How's that feel? She goes, it's a little scary, but it's okay right now. She goes, but in two years, I'm going to go travel. Like, I, I'll never, she named these two women. She goes, I'll never forget these two. I want to go do that. I did nothing to teach that. I can tell that story because, like, I wasn't there. We weren't doing family devotions. Like, I wasn't, like, prophetically leading the children into the kingdom in the kitchen. While she was there, I was probably drinking a little too much vodka watching college football to be candid. <laughs> That is, that's happened on more than one occasion. <laughs> We're better now. Um, but by putting them in mission trips, it transformed the way they thought about Christianity. And as I took college students on mission trips, what I always got out of it was more leaders and more commitment. So one of the things your kids are struggling with, whether it's small town South Carolina or Atlanta, is they've never had an unsolvable problem. Ever. They've, some of them have experienced a divorce, which is an unsolvable problem. But their parents are still there. A very few have lost a parent, which is an unsolvable problem. But on the whole, your group has no unsolvable problems. They have to pass geometry at a private school that's motivated to give them A's so they can put them in exclusive schools we've never heard of and jack up their rates, right? So this is, there are no unsolvable problems. You put people in the mission field, they face a lot of unsolvable problems. Like they leave a village in Costa Rica where everybody there was way happier than them. And they could only eat two meals a day and had no fresh water. And your 15 kids are like, how are they happy? Why are they happy? And... What happens, for instance, in a mission trip is that it just creates um, growth in grace 
and vision in a way that you'll never do it in Sunday school. So I think, for instance, I want this in everybody's life. I want this from everybody's life. You and your church ought to figure out where you can take kids. So this is my opinion. Ninth grade and under, we're taking them to Chattanooga. There's several great ministries in downtown Chattanooga. You can pick any downtown. And we're going to put them in the presence of poverty. And we're going to put them, we're going to teach them that people of poverty are normal people. We're going to have them paint a room. We're going to have them meet people that scare them, but who aren't really scary. And we're just going to let God work on their hearts about their life isn't normal. If you think your life uh, in a home where there's plenty of money and food and tons of educational opportunities, and at seventh grade you already know you're getting a master's, is normal, you're crazy. That's so abnormal in the history of the world. And what mission trips do is do that. You're going to take them and let them break the widow's leaves in your church, and suddenly they're going to start making the widow's cookies and pies, and you're not going to do it. They're going to start serving. Because you're moving them out of a world that none of us intended to create, where they have no problems, they have no real challenges, and they're depressed. And the truth is, when they see an unsolvable problem, it's the first time in their life they might get a mission. So my daughter really struggled with mission, and then these two women said, there's a mission, it's just not in the U.S. You know what I mean, don't overread that. So I would say you take your younger kids on one locally, and your junior year you take one somewhere fun. Costa Rica, Ethiopia, (laughs) and this is just part of what you do. And you'll, what will really surprise you is they'll grow in grace a lot. You'll have a unique fellowship opportunity. You'll quit coughing. You'll get leaders. It's crazy. Um, I got a lot more to say about this, but let me stop and say, do you have any questions at this point about it? Because I don't ever invite questions. Thank you. Now that I'm not an employee of RYM, I can answer this question honestly. So I would want to. I would alternate my. I would alternate my summers. Um, and again, the size of your church, and there's way more small churches than large churches, <coughs> has an impact on this. But I don't know that it's totally healthy to do. I don't know that it's totally healthy to do four trips. Summers are when if you have to choose between other activities. Now, again, in larger churches, you don't have to make those choices. But you know, you might do a mission trip one summer and RYM the next, so that you know a kid in your in ministry is that two summers. Because I love RYM; it's unbelievable. Um, but I just would want to say, in a in a world that's increasingly busy, where we start football practice January first of a high school season. Like, we've got very few windows to do this, and you need to make choices. So I don't think you can make the choice to do... With, let's say you decide that you've got two weeks a year you can get them to do something. I wouldn't want all my choices to be growth and grace. I mean, it's always a preaching, you know, seminar-based experience. I would want it to be also an experience where we're in the field. Because one of the things that's in the mission trip is... <coughs> 
You can do more cross-generational ministry because you're going to get you know, 10 adults to go with 20 children or 5 adults to go with 8 kids. Well, they're going to become friends in a way different way than they've ever been before. Because once we left the state, this is an easy thing to pick on. The adults quit watching Fox News, they quit worrying about the culture, they quit worrying about all, and they're like, well, how do we go help that building? And like, suddenly these kids have people who are in mission with them and not confusing them with that whole side of who we are. And so I would want to make a choice. You might, hey, look, you might go three summers in one. You might say, <coughs> there was some church that I bumped into that said, we have a big sophomore mission trip. Well, everybody got excited for it by saying it. You can only go your sophomore year. And, you know, we have 30 spots. It always filled up. It was, and maybe it's your junior year, but I wouldn't want it to be four summers. That's my answer. Yes, sir. So, obviously, these, like, big experiences are, like, things that we want our students to have. But how do we promote, like, the importance of these trips are just as equivalent to their discipleship during the year? Because, like, we don't want to leave them with just that, like, spiritual high thing, and that's, like, the only way they experience Jesus. Does that make sense? Well, yes, it does make sense. He's asking how do you sort of take them to a mission trip and bring it home. Yeah. So, I'm going to give you an answer you didn't ask for, but I, the first thing I'll say is the more you can get people who've done it to give a testimony in your church the more helpful it is to like promote it and get it there. But the answer to your question is leaders, you as the leader and the other adult leaders, you want to walk out of that mission trip with saying, with a debrief. So let's just pick you. You went to Costa Rica where my daughter went and you met all the happy people who had nothing. Um, and so you come home and she's like, what should I do with this? And now she went on her own so she didn't, you know, but the group she went on with actually provided opportunities to say, this is what you ought to do with what you learned. And one thing I said is, Mary Simpson, if that was important to you, let's find how to do that in Knoxville. We did. So it was momentum in that. So you would say, hey, as we come back from this, something we learned there can be transferred to our town. What is it and how are we going to transfer it? Now you need to know the answer before you start asking them. But they might come up with a better answer. They may say, this happened. I want to take all my friends. We're doing this again next year, but we're all taking our three friends to go see this. Okay? If you're going to be the leaders, I'll support it. Y'all lead it. Because if you can ever get your students leading, look at Alabama, look at Clemson, you're going to win championships. When the students lead the youth ministry, it is way better than when the leaders lead the youth ministry, right? The leaders need to support the leaders. Now, that's a whole different discussion about leadership, but you want to... You want to Capture their imagination. But that's you prepared not to just fly home. Like you might come back and on the two weeks out go, we're debriefing this tonight around pizza. That makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm not sure. I think this question falls under both. How do you prepare high school and middle school students to be um, sense adult Christians where they're coming to church we've got the meetings and it's no longer necessarily exciting for me to go to you might keep on church six months at a time or um, you're not being fed experiences all the time on relationships but you day in and day out all the being which is often top of them is presented at times 
A little bit, it does. So, it, it, here's my answer to the question in a basic sense. Um, and forgive me if I said this, y'all, because when you teach the first, second, and third years, you say a bunch of stuff. And you can't remember your But the big joke, when you go to like the ROYM, like that beach conference, if you if you were a campus minister, all these youth pastors come up and go, I hate your guts, because I poured into this kid for four years. He never paid attention. Then he went to... UVA or Clemson. Oh, now he's on fire and justification and missions and like I did that work. And I think that's true. He did do that work. So there's a part of youth ministry which simply has to take the long view that says some plant, some water, but God causes the growth. Because you will see in some part of your this explosive growth. You'll be like, this kid's awesome. But then this kid you're pursuing is like Dating all the wrong people, drinking too much, hanging around the youth group, dating. And then he, as a junior, he becomes a Christian. And that's just what it means to be a Christian. It's the same thing happens as a pastor. Like, you've pursued these men, you've had small groups, and now I get transferred and they get on fire for Jesus in Atlanta. And you're like, how could you not be on fire for Jesus in Tucson? We needed it more than Atlanta, right? Like, that's just part of it. I don't know that there's a way to prepare it. This will be the worst answer ever. You're like, we just have to do what's in the Bible, which is love them, pursue them, create relationships, and wait for God to do something. I mean, there isn't... Um, I think, again, let's broaden this word and this word. Let's do this. And we'll take a break after this. The moral world in life you experience is you can give your high schoolers only especially your 10th graders and above, the better. Case in point, big church in L.A., Pacific Crossroads, routinely sends their high school juniors and seniors to UCLA to hear really weird lectures. Uh, weird lectures about sexuality, weird lectures about um, physics and you know multiple dimensions and all this. Why? Because then they take them to pizza and go, what did y'all think about that? This is what I thought about it, and I went to UCLA. You're trying to prepare them to have thought about what's coming and experienced it before they move into it. And so that's as good as an answer I can get that you just sort of say, <coughs> again, this is why I'm picking juniors and seniors, right? We're not talking about an eighth grader hearing about pansexualism, right? Um, but your junior needs to know it's there because he's going to, in, in eight months your junior is stepping on Clemson and everybody believes it's legitimate in that power structure for someone to have sex with anything anytime it wants because it has a radically different view of truth and they will not be prepared they don't know that exists unless you so you don't teach it to them but again, you walk, <coughs> you walk with them. I mean, Paul keeps going, and it's not Paul alone, into the Areopagus and into the art museums and, in, and in saying, what are the ideas here? Um, so, hey, let's take a break. Let's take a 10 minute break. So, this tree illustration you have in front of you that you gave me, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what the tree is telling us. I know that I haven't covered the principles. I'm going to do this. I have. Uh, Apparently we get to 11:45. Is that correct? 
Is that correct? Yeah. I'm going to do this for 15 minutes and then we're going to jump to the principles for the last part of our time. So this tree is teaching you how the POM pulls together. And what the tree says is that the principles, I, I really wish this tree better. Uh, the principles, Joel's not here, is he? Uh, the, the principle, scripture, scripture is the ground. Let's look at this illustration. Do you see the scripture is the round part? Do y'all have a, can most of you see this somewhere in the room? I would draw this, but I don't have markers because we're so confident at RYM. Um, hey, I work for us. So I can say those things. Um, so the way this works is we think that ministry flows naturally out of the principles to the goals to the purpose. It goes both ways. Purpose down to principles and principles up to goals. But, and what we mean here is, I'm hoping my pen is filling up with ink while I stand here, is that we all, here's one thing we all believe, we all believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Yeah. And that the Bible nourishes everything we do. And from that thing, we want to grow a tree. And that tree is as, as the Holy Spirit... I just said Scripture. If the Holy Spirit rains down on our seed of Scripture, the gospel of Jesus begins to grow this tree. The gospel is what is justification, what is sanctification... What is glorification? That's union with Christ. That's the preaching of Christ. And that as we see the Holy Spirit fall on the ground of Scripture, as we do ministry of the Word and the sacraments, which point back to the Word because Jesus Himself is the Word, this tree grows up, and the tree is... How did they draw it? We draw it a little bit differently, yeah. The tree should have the fruit of growth and grace, fellowship... Service, missions, evangelism. And I think world and life view is the, I think, better understood. They're the limbs that this fruit hangs on. And so this is how we think it happens. We're pretty sure that's what the Bible teaches. I, I want to be a little unconfident. Now, <clears throat> The reason I'm showing you this is you need to identify uh, how your tree is unhealthy. So we all had this tree in our yard growing up or in our grandmother's yard. Maybe it grew by a, a stream or half of it was in the field where the, all the manure was. <laughs> so the tree like grew up and it grew so strongly to that side that eventually it split because it only had water on the right. It only had manure and feed on the right. And a lot of times at church will skew its tree pretty badly, right? So it's a church It's a church that really, really... These are kind of the new hipster church. It's a new hipster church. We're going to serve the world into evangelism, right? We're going to buy our grandparents aluminum stuff. We're going to redo it, and we're going to drink coffee until everybody becomes a Christian, right? And we're going to... When you walk in my church, the first five things you hear are how you can meet to serve. Now, I'm not in any sense mocking service, but what eventually happens is that limb and that product gets so strong that it shatters and destroys all the other ones. Like, 
the ministry that is trying to be obedient to the Scriptures, which all of you are, and so am I, that comes out of the Word, produces all of these things in some order. It produces growth in grace. It produces fellowship. It produces evangelism and service. It produces missions. And the world in life view is kind of the, what hangs those fruits out there. It produces a world in life view, too, for all Christians. That there's not something secular and sacred that everything's holy. But what, what can help you in this, and, and I, I want to be candid, in, in youth ministry this is harder to think about. So I'm, one of the reasons I'm not going to spend the time here doing an hour and a half on this. If you were all head pastors, I would be beating you over the head with this now and beating myself. Is that a youth group is temporary, not your not your job. I mean, like youth come and go. You have different seasons. You have good you know, groups of leaders come through. You have bad seasons, and and you know one year you get like let's make let's make this positive. Like the local Christian stud is the captain of the basketball team, and he's going to Harvard and he prays for six hours a day. And he's beautiful, and so he starts a Bible study. And he doesn't notice that there are 94 women and 10 of his best friends here, right? And the whole town thinks it's awesome. And suddenly your youth group is like all growth and grace, right? And like, but, but it's beautiful. Like they grow, they go on, they're leaders. But it's your job to sort of say, how are we seeing all of those things? Come out of our preaching and teaching. The other thing this really identifies, and we're going to jump into these in a few minutes, is let me, let me see if I can get up on my soapbox. Here we go. I'm up. Okay. When you say um, I like to preach the Bible, or I like to preach about Jesus, I have to agree with you. I, I, I no level can ever disagree with you saying that. But when your preaching of the Bible or of Jesus is only producing one of these things, you're not preaching the Bible or Jesus. I mean, you are. You're going to heaven. Jesus died for you. You're blameless. But that's because of His work, not because of your preaching. What we will talk about here in a second is that even though these are pretty limiting words, you want your exposition of Scripture... You want, for instance, your curriculum as you think about a child moving through high school in a youth group with very different backgrounds. You want it to cover all of these things in a way that's Christ-centered. So a world in life view is only effective not if you give it to your child to win the argument with evolutionists, but because you give it to them so that they know how to talk to an evolutionist about the beauty of Christ and the Bible. Not about their, quote, dumb ideas about evolution. It's like the, the reason it starts in Scripture and goes forward is that you want all of these things to flow out. So the, I'm, I certainly believe in the Bible and I preach Christ. But year four or five, you need to become keenly aware of what does my youth group look like. Like your youth group could be, you know, and I hope it is, but I bought 200 kids... You know, a lot of people will become Christians. But it will help you to notice what is it that never works in my youth group? Like, what fails in my youth group? Is it that we never really get fellowship? 
Uh, is it, that's probably not hitting Q3, by the way. Uh, do we have a hard time with missions? <clears throat> do we have a hard time with evangelism? And I would argue to you that probably, if we look back at the way you're the topics you're choosing, the subjects you're choosing, and the hobby horses you're feeding on are skewing the, the work of Christ in its fullness and are sort of blocking people who believe in that from being there. Now, just as an aside, um, whatever your head pastor is, that's what your church is going to be. Thank you so much. Uh, um, Whatever your head pastor is, that's what your church is going to be. That's a good thing. God called he and his wife there. He ordained them into that job. The session is supporting him. I'm not, but you want pastors to be more aware that, for instance, um, I'm trying to be funny. They're narcissists and don't like hanging out with people, so there are no fellowship events in your church, right? You would like him to be aware of that, but because he's a narcissist, he can't be aware of that. Um, but you're going to struggle to fill in what's missing in the overall church. So your youth ministry on some level, unless you're sort of a bigger external model, like we're really doing well in the high school, not as, not as great with the Christian kids, you're going to skew the way they do, and you're just hoping that your leadership sees that. But what this says is, don't tell me you're preaching Christ when... I think this board is broken. No, that worked. Don't tell me you're preaching Christ when there are no conversions ever in your youth group. You know, don't tell me you're preaching Christ when you've never left the church building to serve someone else as a group, right? You've never painted a wall, swept up leaves, cleaned out a gutter. You aren't preaching Christ when these things are missing in your ministry. Now let me tell you something liberating. They're missing in all of our ministries. But you need to be aware of that. And like one of the things, just to be, like reformed people can be weird. That's why we like being reformed. Uh, we're the weird guy. We're the nerds at every Christian party, us reformed folks. All the hipsters are like, crud, I knew it was true. It is true. It's okay to look at your group and go, we are terrible at service. And then to take a whole fall and preach on how Christ served the world. Like, it's not true that if we just work through Scripture, it'll all work out. Not if you don't talk about it from Scripture. Like, this is trying to get at the way you're exegeting passages. And it's saying that Christ in His fullness, this is where y'all, especially those of you who are interested, I mean, you're all interested in this, but are tracking your life. Stone, I might buy that, but I need some more justification now in this language. Like, I need way more justification on this language. You don't have that three hours. Uh, you're all smart to do it, but we can't. If I justified that, you'd be like, I didn't learn anything today. Uh, this is what it looks like in the New Testament of Christians. This is where we're getting this language from historic Reformed teaching, from modern Reformed teaching, more importantly, from the Bible. And in its fullness, the preaching of Christ produces all of that. God's going to make, you know, if you're downtown Knoxville, you have different emphasis than if you're in the suburbs of Knoxville. You have a different crowd, you have different people, you have different gifts. 
But partly what you begin to ask yourself is when something is lacking, I'm probably not talking about it well from the Bible. For whatever reason, I'm blocked by that. From when I open up Scripture to study it, I never see that one of the implications of this passage is we ought to hang out. I think I gave you all this illustration. I'll use it again. As I've stepped into my church in Tucson, uh, these folks are very committed, really, to growth and grace. We have about 27 community groups, and they're strong, and they're vital, and they're like... But the thing at the center of them is an overriding shame about deep Bible study. Like deep Bible study. Like we're getting in the Word, right? By the way, I'm for that. But I'm not for the we're getting in the Word because, you know, some people, like they read the Bible at home, they studied a lot, and they're absolutely lonely. So it is valid to have fellowship groups. Not the majority, not only, but it's valid to say we're a get-together group. And we don't really have a plan other than we're going to get together and be together and become friends. That's a valid Christian deal. So when I introduced this idea, I got immediately attacked by the community group mafia in my church. (laughs) They made an appointment. It was five women and one gentleman, and they came in. And they complimented me, and they loved me, and they said how great I was, and that I needed to back up from these unbiblical fellowship groups. They were awesome. So I said, I have a question for y'all. Have you ever been lonely? This is amazing. They're like, no. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Second point. You ever wish your children had more Christian friends? Radio silence. I said, you know, I'm trying to provide an opportunity for people who are on the fringe of Christianity, who aren't sure about what y'all think about the Bible, but are basically with you. They're hoping it's true. To meet other people who might influence them to believe. And then they left because they didn't believe I could answer their question, and I did. It is a valid thing to just have people be together. It's valid to have a Super Bowl party without it having a spiritual dimension. You can get together, scream at the television, order bad pizza. I would encourage you to order good pizza. And be angry on Sunday night at the Super Bowl and the bad refereeing that kept the New Orleans Saints out of the Super Bowl, right? Which, if you're me, you think was God's intervening grace. (laughs) That's valid. It's not the only thing you do. But if you never do that in your church, there's something missing in your presentation of Christ and in your exposition of the Bible. They were together is the first thing Acts says. They wanted to be together, which is kind of what we're talking about. If we could get more youth to want to be together with other Christians, it would help all of us, right? Like we want them to go to campus and join an RUF or a crusade to want to be in fellowship. I'm just saying that this, this tree, as it gets unhealthy, really reveals this. The last thing it does is when your tree becomes... I'm going I'm to use older models now because I can pick on them and nobody cares because they're not really true anymore. They're not being used very much anymore. Unravel. It used to be that churches would structure themselves around being a mission church. 
And they've had, by the way, my church still does not structure stuff around this. We, we, you know, we have a missions week in the fall. We bring in the strangely dressed missionaries to tell us about all the things they're doing that intimidate the crud out of us. Makes us pray more and love them more. They're awesome, but they're dressed. They're doing incarnation. They're dressed like the country they're from. They smell like the country they're from. They eat like the country they're from. We call that Christianity. So we bring in those people who disturb us. But churches would then like do the whole thing around missions. Like we have faith giving to missions. Uh, you know, we have 30 local mission trips where we take 10 adults to Czechoslovakia where some really earnest people are trying to plant a church and then they have to show us around the city and make us feel important. And everything in the church basically says, if you're not touching this, you're not legitimate. Well, what that does is create a tree that's going to break and it eliminates people who are gifted and think this way. Like you need the fullness of the body of Christ. So churches will have emphasis. You can't be everything. Some churches will be more teaching oriented. Some will be more outward focused. Some will be more fellowship oriented. But you can't create a church around one of these without actually hurting the mission you're engaging in. Right? You're hurting the ability of other people who, for whatever reason, I mean, good reasons, don't necessarily connect with missions or missionary. Or, you, you're eliminating their chance to meet you and get to know you. And that is, that's not always from mispreaching, but that can even be from, um, I'm not going down this path, but I'm going to say this. That can just be from having a bad brand, right? The pastor talks about missionaries all the time. He's always going out of the country teaching all the missionaries in China. And so you get branded this, even though preaching there is pretty good and pretty solid. You've got to really own that what this helps you do as we think about this is it helps us have a healthier, fuller tree with the whole body of Christ. Questions before I jump into my last section? <coughs> I'm doing good. I don't know that I'm clear. I'm worried about my time and me because I'm a narcissist, so I'm doing good according to my clock. Oh, yeah, sorry. Not almost. Let's call it. When your church volunteers the college students and the high schoolers and assumes they're doing stuff, let me get on the second. Like, you hate your students. Um, they don't know it. It's revealing that the parents want their children to do it, but they won't do it. I would just tell you this. I don't, I don't say this. You need to stop that. You need to help the head pastor stop that. Um, and you need to begin to change that to... Hey, we're having vacation Bible school with a small church down the road, and they need volunteers. Who's in? Not, hey, the youth group's doing this to any of you adults. Like, that's horrible. Um, I have several churches over through the years in RF who were really mad at colleges because they wouldn't come voluntarily run their nursery in these big RF towns. And they were a big church, and they're like, shouldn't those college kids want to come for free, give every Sunday morning to keeping our nursery for free? And I just look at them and go, I don't want to ever attend your church. If that's your attitude about people. Like, I, you triggered me a little bit there. That's crazy. Cray. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I need to call my counselor real right quick. Uh, you just can't. So then how do you, how do you present to your group or make them feel accepted if you don't want them Well, y'all might need to take a couple years off from them doing some of that stuff and then relaunch some better stuff. 
But you, I'm just, I don't, the, the, the difficulty with that is just so many layers. But I, I would just say, in a gentle, humble way, y'all need to sit with the pastor and go, this is hurting our youth. It's part of the reason we see some of them drift away when they leave. It's causing friction and pain. And if you can, you won't have a hard time if you can come up with a couple examples and say, look, you know the stones. She, that daughter's so mad at them. She is so sick of us making her. Like, what do, and if he says, but it's for her good, you have to go, it can't be for her good. We don't have her in mind. Um, and I would just keep in that, I would make that conversation private with the leaders, not public. And I would just faithfully hang in there. You cannot do that. Um, let me jump into the principles. Where's my, oh, my eraser stuff's on the back. So our principles are scripture, justification, and sanctification. Did I tell you all on Monday about the preaching on the Bible thing on my church on the 30th of December? Good, I did. Um, so here's our principle. Scripture, justification, sanctification, glorification. What we're saying is that the confession of faith in the Bible are telling us that Christ is central to His kingdom. And that understanding who Christ is and what His mission is are vital to being a Christian. So people need to come to see Christ as their Savior and follow Him as their Lord. And that's done as we dig into the Scriptures and proclaim Christ. So for instance, later in your, later in your time, you, uh, you'll see Richie Sessions do a, how do you do Christ-centered preaching and teaching, right? <clears throat> so our, the principles are what define who we are. It's our identity. Small caveat. There could be more. There's not an RYM and RUF. Um, but they're not presuppositions. The presuppositions are, are more casual. They're true, but they're more casual. These are all noticed Bible words. These are all straight up. The rest of our language isn't Bible. We think it reflects the Bible. This is straight up the Bible says. And I would say to you, you've asked me a lot over these weeks, good question, what is the most important thing you can do to prepare a kid for college? And the answer is, I don't know. But I, I'm suspicious that it's helping them admit they don't believe the Bible's true in ninth grade and helping them work to an answer in that before they go to college. That's my suspicion. It's not my only suspicion. I'm going to go back to getting them out of the country. I'm, I'm not a one-answer guy. But if you're saying to me, what do we face in RUF? Is we face a ton of kids who step into college campus from all, especially. So RUF is really a Southern Baptist ministry if you look at our numbers. What I mean by that is half of every student that steps into an RUF and stays is a Southern Baptist. And the reason they're Southern Baptists is because they were taught their whole life the Bible's the Word of God, but the big issues like freedom in Christ, homosexuality, election were ignored. I'm not being, like, I'm a Southern Baptist, so I can say this. So, the, so we're the first group they've ever stepped into that's like, we'll take it on in the Bible. So we're this Southern Baptist thing, but what you discover about those Southern Baptists and PCA kids, regardless of Christian schooling or not, is they're not sure the Bible's true. And it's just where we are, and it's where we're going to be for a long time. And you can't 
sort of stand up and exposit this, but this is why this begins with us. You know, Luther thought the church stood or fall, stands or falls with the doctrine of justification. I can get where he's coming from. I'm going to go with Keller on this. There's only two religions, grace and works. And there's a bunch of Christians in the wrong religion, right, who believe in Jesus but are in works. But more than that, the question that Christianity is going to stand or fall on is what is the Bible and what's it saying, right? It's, is it God's Word and how, what is the hermeneutic to get at it? So it is God's Word and it's Christ-centered. Um, and so therefore, the first principle for us is the Bible. And I would encourage you as often as you can and as gently as you can to have places where your students can process honestly with no chance... With no chance of their parents or leaders in the church finding out what they've asked or said. What is the Bible and what do you think about it? Um, <clears throat> so for instance, uh, preached for eight weeks when I got to CFC. Then I did Advent I had the 30th. The 30th in our church was going to be a low attended. We're going to do one service instead of two. You can't start your new series. Nobody's there. It's the new year. I mean, you've got to preach the Bible. It's important. So I said, hey, for this year, we're going to go through the solas on our five transition Sundays. Transition from one year to the next. Transition from spring to summer. Transition from summer to fall. Transition to Advent. And that's our five. We'll do the five solas. You know, first one's scripture alone. So I'm like, oh. So I'm talking about really old people. A lot of them been in church forever, read their Bible every day, love the Bible, beat up the new pastor about the Bible. These are Bible people. So I'm really nervous about the sermon. I'm like, what am I going to say? I don't already know. So I get up there and I do 1 John 1. My points were, I think, I can look it up. I don't have it real quick. Jesus is the Word. Jesus dripped the Word. Um... Jesus is the word, Jesus strips the word, and I had something about the word is the only thing that can change you. That was kind of my points. Um, I'm really prepared for the sermon. I was really unlike I had I probably did my most studying since I got there because I thought they all know this. I have never gotten that much feedback on a sermon in my life. Um, so I have this lady leaving. I bet she's 84. <laughs> she's got the big like Dallas Seminary Old Study Bible. She's got notes for 40. Like, you give your life to these Christians, right? Here's her quote. It's the second time in 74 years I've heard somebody preach on the Bible. Not from, on. Person after person sent me a text and said, Would you do a little series on the Bible? I've never heard anyone preach on the Bible. This is true because when you get in places like that, I'm in these uber culturally conservative. I mean, again, I love my slightly almost fundamentalist, humongous Christian school, winning state football championships, I'm proud of. When you get in these environments, you've assumed that for them to get there, they've accepted that the Bible is the Word of God. So you never go there. Like, you don't naturally. Like, even if you're doing exposition, you're like, you know, my people here at Westminster know about the Bible being the Word of God. They don't. And their children really don't. And so I, it was just a big smack in the face for me that here in this very much mature older church, no one had ever really sat down 
and said, this is why the Bible is the Word of God. This is what it means. And I would just tell you that even if your kids have been in a Christian family forever where they do devotions, where they take the Bible seriously, if they're in a Christian school where they have, you know, chapel, let's only hope it's at most once a week, maybe it's twice a week, if it's five times a week, repent. Um, nobody can go to worship five times a week and like themselves. Um, let's I'll explain that later. Um, <laughs> They don't know why it's the word. Like, this is kind of how we are. This is where we're, like, everybody put your politics down for a second. This is why Trump got elected. We've just become a country that says, ah, he said it, I believe it. Your people especially. They need to know why they believe the Bible is the word of God. So as you do youth ministry, doing something like a weekend retreat with juniors this is going to be highly interactive where you're going to have four five page articles that are provocative and you just have five meetings about we want to talk about the bible we want to talk about your hero's view of truth and your view of truth why is the it's invaluable it's invaluable and I'm not saying this to criticize my brothers and sisters in Christ in the Southern Baptist, but no group of people claims to believe the Bible more than that group. They're strong, they're big, and they're here to say they're Alabama, they ain't losing soon. They're going to lose every once in a while, they ain't losing soon. But I'm not sure that I, as a, as a paying attention, note-taking Christian in my church, ever heard a sermon on why the Bible is the Word of God. Why it's truth. You may have, but it just isn't something we cover. So this is my hobby horse of saying the first principle of Scripture is the hardest one to communicate and the least talked about. Right? It's hard. Like, here's, here's, why, here's why you need Presbyterians in the world. Presbyterians figure we ought to, we ought to really overeducate ourselves and write some long books. And our answer to everything is, oh, there's a, I mean, I, oh, that's a great question. Read these four books and then come back and talk to me. That's our answer to everything. If we think it's simple, we just have a 50-page pamphlet you can read. This is one of those where we're right. Like you, you, when students are not going to ever read about the Bible or hear contrary opinions, they're going to get to college and freak out. Because I'm going to go a little rightist on myself. Because they're going to step into English. They're going to step into every liberal arts college and be lied to about the Bible. Just straight up lied to. They're going to be told things that now liberal scholars reject in seminaries. Absolutely they are. And none of us talk to them about it. We didn't ever tell them, oh, by the way, people who aren't with us but claim to be Christians believe the Bible was written by 100 people and it was pieced together in this strange letter system. And now those scholars don't believe that anymore. The first time they hear it is because the dum-dums, I love our children, signed up for introduction to the Bible at the University of Tennessee. That's called Why There Is No Truth. That's all that class is. The guy spent three weeks blowing the Bible to pieces so that I started going around with my freshman going, don't take this class to your sophomore. Don't take this class to your sophomore. And then I was like, I was then pushing sophomores into it going, read this while he's talking, read this while he's talking, read this while he's talking. And we did a lot better with that class. I'm just saying, and I'll step off my high horse and get my Southern Baptist voice off. You have got to take on... The deal of helping your kids struggle with the Bible. Um, 
By the way, your people don't know why they... They believe it. That's what... Like, my people believe it. Um, John. Yes, sir. Can you... You said read this while you're taking that class. Yeah. What were some... Books. Um, I took excerpts out of I took excerpts out of this book, um, and forgive me, I've been off campus for a long time. Um, there's an added print book you can still get by. Um, I'll have to look this up. I email it to you. So I had a professor at Covenant Seminary. Oh, come on, John. No, he he. When I got there in '89, he had been retired ten years. Had to bring him back. Um, he wrote a book called he wrote a book about the New Testament um, and he just had it was it was beautiful academic work and some of it was horrible I don't mean wrong like you couldn't read but when he got going I think when his wife started editing it got gold um, and I'm being honest like she really like I heard her lecture I'm like oh I understand you way better um, and I just ran some of that off, and then uh, New Testament documents are they reliable? What was uh, that's um, the Westminster guy? I mean, if you Google this on Amazon and you find Westminster professors and Covenant professors, but I could I could come up with that list for you. But my point was, there's another side to that. Right. There's another, and and my students go back and go, hey, I think I'm buying him, but at least thank you for making this a reasonable position you take. Because what they're doing to your students is making your view that the Scriptures were of God utterly unreasonable. Like, only a Neanderthal who's never finished third grade would believe it. And it's not hard to go... By the way, here's, and here's one thing I would say. We have more confidence in what a New Testament wrote than any, anyone else in history. So our earliest document of a New Testament is... I forget what the book says, 34 years... Recently, it just dropped down to like 21 years. So we have a copy 21 years after the original. The Iliad is 480 years. He wrote it. Our first copy is 480 years old. So our confidence in the New Testament, which he's taking digs at, as a... His argument can't stand up to the facts. Now now we're getting into what is faith. Well, I believe it when it says the virgin had a baby. That's the hard part. So I'm just saying as an example, you need you might need to do the opposite. Hey, okay. Warn your parents, invite them in a room, tell them you're doing this. But you're going to say, we're going to study the Bible, and I'm going to give them some small articles that argue why it's not, so that we can prepare them to walk into college and get ready for what is true. You don't want the first time they meet this introduction to be after they just pledged the pikes, got drunk, and showed up at a New Testament class. It's not your best moment as a parent. And it ain't the drinking you should worry about, because we'll get over that. Because every PCA ruling elder did, right? Um, um, so, I, I, I know you wish I'd say a lot more about that fear enough, but like I'm just saying the reason that's our first one... And I think the unexpected thing I discovered is your people don't know this as well as they think, right? Our next three, <coughs> our next three principles are uh, justification, sanctification, and glorification. <coughs> I'm not going to do the exegesis so uh, on this. I'm going to do it for you without using a Bible and going slow. We are convinced all of the 50 to 70 writers of this POM for 30 years 
that the Bible and the confession, because we are PCA people, so we're relying on the confession, put Christ at the center of everything. And that all of our exposition of Christ, all of our exposition of Scripture and the kingdom has to be Christ-centered. This description, justification, sanctification, and glorification, is the way we decided, but especially considering historic orthodoxy, that this is the best way to teach people about what it means that Christ is exalted. He's the Son of God. Now look, what I just said was like skipping eight books. Um, that ought to be proved. Uh, and when y'all got six weeks, we'll prove it. But right now, we're going to just assume that. Because people will look at this, and I get this, by the way, and say, I mean, justification, what about union with Christ? Or, I mean, there's a lot of New Testament language that people would wonder why we don't have that as our core identity. And I'm just going to say that at this point, we are children of our grandparents. We are Luther's children. And when Luther finds, what Luther finds in his church apart from the Bible that he's discovering and being born again, is a church that's wholly devoid of anyone who understands justification by faith. Now let me do a brief exposition of why I think justification by faith tied with the Bible is the thing I wish your kids could walk out of high school understanding. So, three New Testament books, Romans, Galatians, James, three problems, right? Short exposition. In Romans, he's never been there. He's trying to get there. He's, he's, he's led some people to Christ, discipled them. They've wandered to Rome. They made a mistake of doing evangelism, and people believed, and a church sprung up. And Paul, being the great Presbyterianist, was very concerned they had not read enough, so he wrote them a long letter. So he could Presbyterianize them. So he sends them this letter, and his concern is that they understand the gospel. So I think one of the fun things to say about Romans is it's Paul's track. It's Paul's... You want to know what Paul's... So, RUF preachers have only five sermons. We go around all these churches and we do our five great sermons. And they're like, you're a great preacher. I'm like, if you did five sermons over and over, you'd be great. Romans is Paul's five great sermons. It's, it's, you never see the book he's working out of except in Romans. Because everywhere else he writes, it's like, you forgot book three, you bunch of idiots. And he starts talking about book three, right? But in Romans, it's the only time, other than really Colossians... Where he fully writes, this is what you need to know. And clearly he's concerned he's not getting there. He says in Colossians, I'm coming to see you. And I'll fix it when I get there. I'm attributing motives to Paul that are so unfair, but fun exegetically. Right? I'm coming. But Romans is this whole book. So that book spins or begins deeply on the exposition of fallenness, right? And turns on Abraham believed God and discredited him as righteousness. And then he spends a bunch of chapters working through what is justification by faith in light of being fallen as a pagan, fallen as a, a, a God-fearing pagan, fallen as a Jew. All of you, by the way, very different people, need to understand what Abraham found, and that is he was justified by faith apart from the law. Right? And then he exposits that and begins to talk about justification and moves into sanctification and moves into glorification. And in Paul's mind, these all flow together. If you want to know how Paul thinks about Christ, he thinks about it in Romans, which is justification, sanctification, glorification, and certainly a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit that often we forget. But that's how he thinks about it. Now, Paul writes a letter to the Galatians 
who are a group of people who've decided that faith in Christ is not enough and they're going to go back to the law, right? They're, they're thinking about possibly circumcising themselves to make sure that they're holy and sanctified. And Paul gets pretty fired up about this. Uh, um, Galatians is the closest you get to Paul really being triggered. I mean, he is not okay. He makes one point. He says things like, if you're going to do this, then cut off all your private parts. He literally says that at one point. He says, if that's what you think, then get serious about it. Um, but that book turns, makes an argument on one verse. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His whole exposition in Galatians is, you don't understand Abraham. That was his message to a bunch of people he hadn't met who were fairly faithful Christians in Rome. You need to understand Abraham. Was well, answer to the people trying to go back to the law is, you need to understand Abraham. Then we have James written, not by Paul, but by people who are like-minded. And now we have our REF group. This is written to an REF group. So, they believe, but they don't think they need to do anything. Nothing. They're just going to say verbally, Jesus is real, I believe in grace. And then they're doing all the things you're fearful your kids are doing in college. There's no sense of holiness. There's no sense of the appropriate use of the law. There's no sense of the full revelation of God. These are, these are Christians gone bad the wrong way. <coughs> What's he say? Abraham believed God and was credited in his righteousness. He doesn't say more. They don't quote more than that. All th See, this is how the PCA would solve that problem. We would create a beginning in Christ, John study. That would be who we'd send to the Romans. Hey, read John. So then we would go to the Galatians, right? And we have sonship. It's not an accident the sonship is successful. In the I'm going to get this thing to unturn if I have to kill myself. It's not an accident that the sonship works in the PCA. Uh, we're going to get serious about following Jesus. And he's like, you know Jesus is serious about following you, and that's more important, right? That's what he's saying. Like, he's way more serious about following you than you are about him. And then to these people who are like... Ah, doesn't matter what we do. We believe the right thing. Abraham believed God. So, see, the New Testament sees not exactly... Union with Christ is humongously important. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there are nine books I can give you. <laughs> but he sees these questions of beginning in Christ and turning to the law and turning away from holiness... It's turning on this question of what it means to be justified by faith. Um, and look, there's a hundred reasons for that. I simply today in my limited time want you to see that when people like a Brian Chapel or a Ligon Duncan talk about the importance of Christ-centered preaching, Ligon would go this far, I'm not sure Brian would. That in part what we mean is that the Reformation with all of its beauty and all of its hard stuff is essentially right. When you leave the doctrine of justification by faith, you've left Jesus. If justification is by anything else, then you've left the gospel. And what I would add to that is that it's not simply uh, the removal of sin, but it's the imputation of righteousness, right? So what PCA Christians understand, and heck, 
What Southerners understand is Jesus died for people's sins. But if Jesus, for instance, only removed your sins and never gave you his righteousness, you'd still go to hell. It's not the removal of sin that saves you. It's the giving of Christ's righteousness that ushers you into heaven, that includes you in Christ. So, for instance, and I probably said this to y'all, I can't remember. That Colossians passage where he says, so that now you are, um, you are clean, you are free from accusation. Quick, open, sesame. This is magic. I mean, you do understand, this is magic. If I showed my 18-year-old self this, I would have me arrested. <laughs> so it says this, and none of us understand this. Um, he says, But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. My wife can never say that about me. And your spouse can never say that about you. They really can. They live with you. They love your socks off. And they know you. Your children will really never say this. Uh, they accuse you of existing being a problem, right? So, think about that. You are holy in His sight. Without blemish and free from accusation because of Christ's physical body. So I would say to you, the teaching of the removal of sin, which is so common in our culture, especially Southern culture, when not accompanied by the imputation of righteousness, is absolutely confusing to people. Because people sense the right thing. They realize that it's not just being sinless, but it's being positively good. What you needed from Christ was not just that your sin was taken away, but that you fed the 5,000. That when they beat you, you said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. You will never do that. I'm not saying a Christian's never done that. You will never have that gift that Christ loved His enemies. Look, you're living in a world where hating your enemies is now being considered righteous by many churches. And so this idea of justification by faith, the removal of sin, and the imputation of righteousness so that Christ sees you as blameless, free from accusation, needs to be heard by people who are divorced right now. By people who are three-time drug addicts, who are alcoholics. These are heard by moms who quit reading their Bible because their husband talked them into having four kids and now they're mad at him and them. <laughs> and they're driving a Honda minivan which they swore they would never drive. And they forgot to get dressed ever on Tuesday. When the husband came home, she threw the wine bottle at him. She's not an alcoholic. And said, you fix the supper. I've got to sleep. As her kids sniffled and cried and she wiped the poop from her cheeks. <laughs> Those people don't feel free from accusation. And the husband doesn't either. Because all he did was fail all day with his boss at work. He didn't sell enough. He didn't do enough. And his wife kept texting him saying, Can you come home? I'm having a bad day. And so what he came home to was he failed as a dad. He failed as a husband. She failed as a mom. And now they're sleeping in separate rooms. 
And taking their sin away is not enough. They've got to know there's somebody there who will fix it. And it ain't us. It's Jesus. So when you don't teach this double imputation, you're hurting people. How does this apply to college students? I mean, how does it apply to high school? High school students are the most nervous, guilty people in the history of the world. And it's because of us. Because here's what we're telling them. Here's what you're telling your children. If you're not Tim Tebow, who wins at everything, who's, I'm thankful for them, who's still a virgin, who then marries a supermodel, who starts a, a non-profit where he goes around the country helping truly disabled families with truly disabled, which is a beautiful thing, with unlimited resources, and your mother chose not to abort you at the last minute, if that's not who you are, we're kind of disappointed in you. That's what we're saying in the PCA. That's literally what we're saying. We're building better schools, we're doing better education, we're doing better church. That won't work. Like, you have to know that if you go to the far country, there will be a party phone for you when you get home. That's the imputation of righteousness. The Lamb's Feast is not a celebration of victory. It's a celebration of Jesus. You're eating His foils because you're in Him. Not because you earned it. And when you don't tell people this, even though you think you are, when you don't emphasize it, you're leaving them a bit defenseless in this world. Because yes, I need my children to do mathematics. And yes, I need them to turn in the English paper. But no, I don't need them to win a state football championship in the name of Jesus. Right? Like, this atmosphere that should be in a church. So if you ask me, one of my biggest challenges at CFC is that they are rightly, hear me, they're rightly proud of that school they built, but we need to push that school a certain distance away from the church. We're not ashamed of it. We're glad it's there. It's unbelievable. But I don't need my children confusing academic performance with grace. I need them to understand that both are related, but I don't need families to walk in and go, oh, so if I'm following Jesus, I have to go to the expensive race, I mean, Christian school down the road? Yeah, I need you to know you don't have to go to the Christian school down the road to be a part of this church. I just need you to believe that Jesus died for your sins and He's making you perfect in His sight. That's all I need you to know. The rest is I said. And I need to push it out there. That's why when you're in churches where there are too many Sunday schools on why homeschooling is better, or too many... Look, you can get in some hipster churches. We can reverse it. There's literally a pastor I interviewed who said he would never go to a place where people used a Christian school. Um, he's an idiot. It's just the reverse of the first, right? Like, oh, let's talk about how public schools are great. I did public schools. It's great, and it's a war zone. My buddy next door did a Christian school. It's great. It's a war zone. Best day I had in Knoxville was the day they caught, they had the biggest high school marijuana arrest at the Christian school parking lot. It was my best moment. I got to be honest with you. And I gave it money the whole time I was there. I went to their football games. They're awesome. But it was helpful for us public school people when the 
big marijuana bust was in the back of the Lexus at the Christian school. It helped a little bit. Um, the kingdom, the gospel, it helped the school. They realized, well, we might have a problem. Yeah, you might just call them. They're sinners. Uh, so I just want you to know that <laughs> for us, justification, and I shouldn't it's the thing that defines RUF. If you want to understand what we think we're producing in RUF, here's what we hoped a student graduating understood in RUF. Justification by faith and the importance of the local church. That's what we hoped we did. So, justification. But our, our view of Christ <laughs> is justification, sanctification, glorification. How am I doing the time? Oh. Um, um, so... To understand Christ, and this even goes, you have to understand what He did in the past, what He's currently doing now, and what He will do in the future. These three things help you to understand His fullness. Because some moments in your Christian life, you need to look back to what He did. You need to see what He accomplished and what He did. At other times, you need to say that because of what He did there, He's doing something here. Like, His life, death, and resurrection allow me to now experience life, death, and resurrection. His, what He did on the cross allows me to say that even though I'm gay, I will live celibate. Because He did. I'm not saying Christ is gay, I'm just saying His self-control means I can help have self-control. He's working in me. I won't do it like Him. I can look back to that, but I can see that something is presently happening because of that. And here's what's harder for us. We should be experiencing this world in such a way that we know we need hope. That the real thing held out to our children and to our own hearts as we see our families disintegrate, as we seek drug addiction, is that there is a place where every tear will be wiped away. And you should need that. When I said your children don't have unsolvable problems, Partly the reason they don't understand the Bible is the Bible sees people living with unsolvable problems. One of the things I would suggest you ought to say more often to your congregation is this. If a Chinese Christian isn't trying to do it, you shouldn't try to do it. Like a Chinese Christian ain't got a lot of earthly hope. Um, they get followed by the secret service to worship. They go on a list. They're unemployable above a certain level in the government. Their phones are tapped. They're often taken in and questioned. They're asked what's going on. This is just normal life for a Chinese Christian. None of them are protected. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to be funny. None of them are on so laugh or whatever. None of them are taking antidepressants. None of them are in orange theory. They're not yoga. They don't need a safe space. They don't need freedom. They're not trying to find themselves. All those things are really good. But amazingly, there's something in their hearts with no earthly hope that makes them happy. Huh. Wonder what that could be. Heaven. A glorified Christ. And for them, that thing makes sense. So when you get around Chinese Christians in countries, they're always like, one day, this will all be ours. They're living in a future reality and not in a present reality. They recognize that something in the past and something in the future comes into their now to help them endure some pretty tough suffering. Death. Family division. Being ostracized. So all of these things, justification, sanctification, and glorification, there are things you need to consciously teach high school students. Will they get it all? No. But you'll plan it, and it's going to bloom later for you. Again, I'll say this. 
I'll put my own daughter. She goes to Costa Rica. I didn't do it. She did it. This is my other daughter. And she comes back and says, Daddy, people need heaven. Yep. First time she probably felt it. 18-year-old. Went to a village, found people happier than her. Realized this can't be fixed. This is bigger than us. UN can't fix this. Education can't fix this. Um, If you want to know what your big lie is, your big lie is education. You are telling yourself, even as a Christian, that enough education solves all problems. I'll tell you what education doesn't solve. Sinful nature. At all. It inflames it. It empowers it. It enables it. Then we don't do education. But just quit lying about it. Quit saying a better education is a way to save your children. It's not. I've got a few more minutes. I want to do questions. That's why I was going fast. Yes. I know you said there were a lot of things that could be on the front of the screen there. Could you just talk for a second about why the book is on, you know, just if simply why not creation, fall, redemption, restoration right there? I mean, some folks look at the truck and say, hey, that's a little bit reductionistic, a little bit focused on the individual. It takes away from your parts of the street about service and that sort of thing to not have more of a view of Les Newsom is saying that. Um, So I'm agreeing with you. (laughs) So I think, okay, we're not, to answer your question, we're not here with with Bibles open doing straight exposition. We're trying to think about a big idea about ministry. How the person experiences Christ alone, and I really mean this, even in a church alone, like, you have to wrestle with God. Until He touches your hip, until you wrestle with Him, you're not in the kingdom. And how you understand what happened to you in that wrestling, unless you actually let the Scripture interpret that wrestling, these things won't work real well for you. You'll misinterpret these things. So we don't mean that if you... And I'm not making fun of this, that it's, you, you just simply need to believe the gospel again today. I get that language that my heart quickly turns to works. Instead of saying Christ is enough for me, I need my children to do a certain thing for me to be happy or joyous. So I get that my heart is still fighting with that. But it would. I think if you do creation, fall, redemption... You're talking about a group thing and you actually fail to talk about the individual in that. So it is the individual's job to enter into, well, it's not, I mean, I would say it's our job to enter into recreation. And, you know, but I think what we're saying, and I think if you look at the confession, that language is there, but it's later. And I think creation, fall, redemption, for the sake of this discussion, is a bigger question that comes under very importantly world in my view. That it's there, but we're saying how you understand meeting Christ and letting the Scriptures actually interpret that begin to form all of this other stuff. And it also forms how you come down at it. Because you could certainly, you want your identity to be something that no one other than a born-again Christian could agree with. So, without pushing it too much, it's possible a Mormon could agree with creation, fall, redemption. Could really buy the whole thing. And our point is, no, no, no. There ain't but one God, Jesus Christ. And entirely in Him, apart from your family, you are saved. 
Some will enter escaping through the flames. Everything will be burned up, but they'll be saved. We're all uncomfortable with that. Mormons are real uncomfortable with that because they can't agree with it. So this is an identity statement, whereas the creation, fall, redemption is more of, a, again, it's a world in life. It's huge, like it's huge covenant theology. Um, and you see some of that show up in the presuppositions. Theology is there. You have to have that operating as part of your uh, your background of your computer. Not always on. Sometimes it comes to the front, but often it's just it's the framework for everything. And I would say the reason I also wouldn't put the gospel there, which people at a Redeemer Churches network will bump into this and go, no, no, you got to put the gospel there. The gospel's actually too big a word. Um, it's a beautiful word, and we don't need to be ashamed of it, but it, it means everything. Like, justification is in the Bible, and we can all agree on it, right? It's, it's not hard to exposit you to that position. Same thing with sanctification. Glorification is a little harder to exposit, but nobody's disagreeing with it. Versus gospel language, and if it was people get nervous about what do you mean? Do you mean evangelism? Do, do Christians need the gospel? I don't need any of that debate. Um, you grow in grace, right? You grow... I mean, there's some sense which today, as a father whose children have left, that I am blameless without accusation is more amazing. Far more. As a 25-year-old who had messed up people pretty badly, the more I'm married, the more I believe. So there's a sense in which that's why we choose that. It's a good question. Yes, sir. Talk a little bit about how emphasis on scripture, justification, sanctification, glorification plays out in like your ministry plan for that year. It's a great question. Uh, how does it play out in your ministry plan for that year? Very different for college and high school than church. You know, here's what I mean. Um, I don't know that I would do this, but I sure like it. And after what happened to me on December 30th, I will think more about it. David Sinclair, for instance, started every semester's large groups at Clemson. And you could do this. With the same sermon, 2 Timothy 3. All scriptures God read. And he produced a thousand human beings who can memorize, who can tell you what that sermon said. And I don't think it's I don't think that it's surprising that he produced more than any other campus ministry still, ruling elders, teaching elders, commissioners. Because he just said, first thing you're gonna hear from me is you're all welcome. We believe the Bible's work of God, you should believe it too. Here we go. David also took it a step further and thought that in RUF alone, you should do justification in the fall and sanctification in the spring. He thought you should do justification in the New Testament, sanctification in the Old Testament. And so he saw this as really controlling what he did. And I would say to you that for me, I want to make sure that I pass through, even the way I said it to y'all here, that doctrine of justification and sanctification four times every year in my congregation in the spring and fall. A bunch of our people leave for the summer, so we go down in numbers. And so I want to make sure that when they're there, they hear this. Uh, that this is what justification by faith is. Even as I'm doing exposition in Colossians or Philippians, it'll come up. But I want to make sure that I pass through it. And intentionally pass through it. One of the things we're going to do in our church is we're going to create a class... And it's probably going to run. So think of this number of people, 550 people. There are 680 people who make up the 550 people. 
So when you really, we have this one statistician in my church, I'm falling in love with him. Like he's like, John, we have 680 people who attend this church. I'm like, no, we don't, it's just we do. And he tells you how many attend 90% of the time, how many attend this, it is, and you're like, at first I'm like, this is creeping me out. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Um, so I need to get 680 people on the same page about big stuff. But for instance, I have this class called the Valiant Bereans. Um, they're what you think they are. They're your grandparents you love. You definitely want to go to the club with them and eat. You definitely want to get Christmas presents from them. You never want to go to Sunday school with them ever. <laughs> um, after they stopped this, after we did the Pledge of Allegiance and had the Constitution read, I did you not? Um, we stopped that. Um, they, in, they engaged in some very fantastic exposition from Philippians on why the Democrats were failing. So we're getting there. I love these people. I'd die for them. I obviously will. I moved to Tucson. But look, those people build a great country. They follow Jesus. Your children are going to look at you and go. And say, so here's what my child said to me one day. We're riding home from church. And Sean Slade made some, some application about racism. And our oldest daughter goes, Man, I appreciate Sean doing that. Like, you know, Mom and Dad, we're not racist like you are. And my parents, my person and I are like, what are you talking about? How are we racist? And didn't she undress us? So don't ever think you won't be your grandparents lost and confused and having done some dumb stuff. You too need to be forgiven for dumb stuff. But my dumb stuff is just we're running Republican caucuses during Sunday school. So what am I going to do about this? And this is your answer. I'm going to create a what is the gospel five-week one-off Sunday school. I'm going to do it three times for really small groups, and we're going to sharpen it up. And it's going to talk about who is Christ, what is his mission, and what is the church. What is the church is where we're going to dig pretty hard into the heart of CFC. It is not a place where we protect politics or just our children. It is a place where Christ's mission calls us to love our enemies. Right? And then they're going to love this. We're going to make everybody take it. And it'll become our new members class. And in that class will be how does Christ justify someone? How does he change someone? And then when we talk about how he, how he saves you, how he changes you, and where he's taking you, we can get into mission and identity pretty easily. And everybody's taking it. So instead of making the Sunday school take it, we'll just offer it every fall and spring. We're going to limit the number to 40 people because we're going to do two weeks and then a discussion, two weeks and then a discussion, then a conclusion. And we're going to make everybody do that. So that's me taking this and controlling what I'm doing in my church. Other questions? Thank you. Go in peace.